Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Deep Dharmic Doo-Doo. Resistance is futile, but so also is acceptance. The talk was given by Peter Cohen on February 4th, 2023, via Zoom. Peter was the drummer for the Western Bell rock band Liars, Gods, and Beggars from 1988 to 1994. He is a spiritual practitioner who has followed the non-dual path and rhythm of life in Alaska and Idaho as a nurse and a musician. In this talk, he speaks about the need to find our own way through the forest of the unknown on the spiritual path, leaving behind the security of the known. Peter proposes that the Dharma, or teachings, and practices that we have learned are in the domain of the known and can imprison us. He says that they may be held in high regard, but ultimately must be left behind to fully realize the path. The talk includes some lively discussion about the role of a guru versus what has been referred to as the direct path. The practice of neti neti, a Sanskrit expression meaning not this, not this, which has been used as a way of considering non-dual reality by identifying all the things of the world that are not this, is mentioned in the talk. Peter says that finding ourselves in doo-doo, a place of being stuck, can be useful in coming to find our own way. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Peter Cohen. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. I want to start out with some definitions. I chose the title Deep Dharmic Doo-Doo, referring to a specific type of doo-doo. Not any kind of doo-doo, but dharmic doo-doo. The term dharma, it's a Sanskrit term with several meanings, but it's become more used in the West generically to indicate any teaching that could be considered a real teaching, a teaching of contemplative spirituality. And what doo-doo is, is the place where some of us might find ourselves if we're practicing some spiritual endeavor, where we find ourselves really stuck, where we can't see a way to move forward, we can't see a way to move back, and we're stuck. We're in doo-doo. It just seems hopeless. In fact, it is hopeless, and that's one of the themes of this talk. Also, before I begin, I want to emphasize that what I'm going to be presenting is just one side of a coin. It's a coin that only has one side, but nevertheless, to the mind, there is another way of looking at this whole universe. And I'm quite aware of that, even though I'm going to really come down very heavily on the doo-doo side. <laughs> just be aware, there'll be several reminders in the course of the evening that there is another side. I don't 100% guide my own practice along the lines 
that I'm going to be presenting here. But I do think it's a very important consideration, even though it's only one side of the coin, and even though you might find it to rub up against how you feel or think about your spiritual practice. I think it's a very important consideration because, well, I'll get to the because as we go into this. I think the most important quote, which is also on the announcement that shapes the whole evening, is the one by St. John of the Cross. In order to come upon that which you know not, you must go by a way in which you know not. That to me is a quote that keeps unfolding and unfolding. It's one of those beautiful, beautiful poetic quotes that also is very gritty and very real. Okay, one more introductory remark. The premise of the evening, at least to start out with, is that there is such a thing that we call enlightenment or awakening. That premise is going to be exploded in a little while here. But for starters, we're going to go on that assumption that there is such a thing. The thing that's been termed enlightenment does exist, and some human beings have realized that condition. So the first statement I want to make regarding doo-doo is that anything emphasize that word anything, that one does to achieve or get to that something or that place or condition that we're calling enlightenment will take the person directly away from that condition or state. Any move, those movements include all the many practices that some of us have held so dearly over the years. Meditation, nama, japa, austerities of any kind, inquiry, fasting, prayer, all of the practices that have been handed down for millennia in dozens of esteemed traditions by hundreds of worship gurus and teachers, every one of them, if you follow those, it's going to take you away from this thing we're calling enlightenment. It's going in the opposite direction from where you want to go. I know that there's an off-peated instruction to practice as if there's no goal, practice without a goal. But my contention here is that that's not possible. A teacher that I have been very influenced by, Adyashanti, has said that the only thing sillier than seeking for enlightenment is pretending you're not seeking for enlightenment while you're seeking for enlightenment. So we might want to imagine that we're seeking with no goal, but to the ego, to the named person, personality, ego, that's just not possible. It's a silly proposition to think that it is, because anything you undertake as an ego, by definition, has a goal, or else you wouldn't be doing it. You can tell yourself it's for no goal, but you're kidding yourself. You're being silly in Aja's terms. Other things that are not possible for the ego or for you Aspirations toward generosity, kindness, compassion, or any of those nice spiritual values that we like to aspire towards, the ego cannot do any of that. And anything that the ego does with those values in mind, you're going to end up again kidding yourself. The very substance of what we call ego or the personality is a no. That's its position. It's a no. The very state of resistance or seeking or both, resistance and or seeking, is what defines what the ego does. 
it's driven by the seeking of pleasure and avoidance of pain. So given the seeking of pleasure and avoidance of pain, any, quote, spiritual value that you aspire towards, coming from that context of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is just not going to work. It's going to be a, a weak facsimile of compassion, kindness, generosity, whatever value you uh, aspire towards. A distinction that I want to present right away at the top here is the distinction between the, the known versus the unknown. And then we'll circle around back to these confrontational statements I've already made. So in the domain of the known, there are many benefits that can be sought after, both for the collective and for the individual. And it's known simply because we can name it and imagine it. So, for instance, those values that I just mentioned, like compassion, generosity, kindness, they're known. So even if you are able to achieve them, they're still within the domain of the known. And if you're on a contemplative or esoteric spiritual path, what you are after is in the domain of the unknown, like St. John of the Cross was talking about. Defining characteristic of the known is that it's an artifact of the past. Everything and anything you can possibly know or imagine has its origin in the past, either something you've been exposed to or which culture has invisibly inoculated you. And that's the same to do with the future, because the future, by necessity, has to be in reference to the past. Also, it's true of the present as well. The famous now, the now that's talked about by realizers is not a place in time at all. It's outside of time. But the now that most of us assume is meant by now is in time. Therefore, it's determined by the past. Therefore, it's still within the domain of the known. The unknown, on the other hand, is the domain which cannot be spoken or described. Anything in the domain of the known can be experienced. That which is in the domain of the unknown is itself not an experience of any kind. Because as soon as there is an experience, there has to be some entity that's experiencing it, or else there wouldn't be an experience. So if there's going to be somebody experiencing something, then you're in the domain of the known. In the domain of the unknown, there's no experience involved. Or another way of putting it is that that which is experienced and the experiencer, that which is experiencing, are collapsed. And what you're left with is something, again, that can't be named, but it's certainly not an experience. So any state of peace or happiness or joy or ecstasy, they're all in the domain of the known. Now, there is, as an aside here, I won't get into it too deeply here, but there is peace and happiness and joy and all that with capital letters that are not experiences. They're byproducts of the unknown. But the states of ecstasy or joy or all these nice positive states that we aspire towards, that a lot of us do, since they're in the domain of the known, they're transitory. They come and go. That which doesn't come and go 
is in the domain of the unknown and it's not an experience. So you cannot be present to experience a non-experience. As soon as there's any kind of experience, no matter how sublime, there must be an experiencer. And if there's no experience, if there's a non-experience, then you cannot be there. So although we may nurture some image or notion of what it is that we call enlightenment, its actual condition is not anything like anything we might have conjured up. That is, it's in the domain of the unknown. So I'll insert here a little story that Ajashanti, I've heard him repeat this quite a few times. He's been teaching now for some like 25 years, and he has not met one person in 25 years who has awakened according to his definition of awakening, who has said, well, Aja, it's just like I thought it would be. It's never at all like what anyone has ever imagined it's going to be. In that sense, it doesn't really exist at all. So even though we started out by saying that there is such a thing called enlightenment, because it's never something that we can imagine or conjure up in our minds, and it's not an experience, and because it's in the domain of the unknown, it might as well not exist. So I'm going to make the claim that enlightenment exists and does not exist at the same time, which is so true of everything, isn't it? <laughs> Another reason why enlightenment is a questionable term, because it's not anything that happens to any individual. The person never awakens, never has enlightenment. Enlightenment only applies to consciousness itself or God or Insert whatever term you like, whether it's consciousness or God or whatever. Consciousness, though, is already awake. That's its condition. So it can't awaken. It's already the state it's in. By definition, consciousness is conscious. So that's another demolition under the edifice of what we're calling enlightenment. A further distinction that some teachers have made is the distinction between God versus the Godhead. And this is a kind of tricky, very subtle distinction. But Meister Eckhart made this distinction. He was a 14th century monk. I forget what denomination. He's Catholic. I can't remember whether he was Franciscan or whatever. But he made that distinction. And Ajashati has made the same distinction. And that's another fine tuning between the known and the unknown. It's hard to make real categorizations here, but if we place God in the domain of the known, then the Godhead is in the domain of the unknown. And since God is already very sublime and non-dual in its nature, for my purposes anyway, I'm going to place even God in the domain of the known rather than the unknown. I'm in no position to say whether that's in fact the case, but I just want to throw in this consideration of the Godhead because it's another way that realizers have made distinctions between the known and the unknown, whereas the Godhead, you cannot be talked about at all. You can't even say anything about it. You can say that there's something for you in realizing God. There is peace and joy and, and happiness with capital letters. It's the peace that surpasses What's the word? Surpathos. Surpathos. Understanding. But it's still peace and joy. So there is something there for you. 
But in the Godhead, there's nothing whatsoever there for you. And realizers, some of them have realized and even are absorbed in God or consciousness. In some rare cases, a still small voice arises that says, you're not finished. That's not the end of the story. I'm going to quote Aja or refer to Aja again here because he's been such an influence on me. In his case, he realized that the further thing was the Godhead. And when that was realized, he saw there was just nothing there for him. There's no benefit except that it is the whole enchilada. And the whole enchilada, there's no end to it. There's no end to the Godhead. So it's not like it's a finish line. Yes, there's no end to the enchilada. I'm going to read a quote from Ajashanti. The infinite is ultimate reality and is beyond all conceptualizations and experiences. It is the ultimate ground of all being, all existence, all dimensions, and all perceptions. It is transcendent of all categories, all descriptions, all imaginings. It is beyond ego, self, presence, being, and non-being, and oneness, but it is not other than these either. Neither conceivable nor experienceable, the infinite, and he's calling the Godhead the infinite here, the infinite knows itself through a simple intuitive regard it has for itself in every aspect of itself. Thus, the only thing that realizes the infinite is the infinite, and only such realization brings an end to the mind's restless search for God, truth, and meaning. High bar. So, back to this notion that anything you do only takes you away from all this good stuff. Anything that you've been told or you've read or your culture has conditioned you to take in is obviously in the domain of the known. And all of that must be left behind. You must find your own unique way. And everybody, even though there are general signposts that everyone encounters on the path, no matter what tradition they're in, you have to find this path that St. John of the Cross calls, you must go by a way in which you know not. That way in which you know not has to be discovered by yourself, independently of anything you've been told, anything that culture has put in you, anything that you've read. It has to be your own purely independent discovery. It has to be your own unique way in the forest of the unknown. But here's a double bind. You cannot do that. You can't discover your own unique way. We're back to do-do here. You cannot leave your beliefs behind. You cannot surrender. You cannot love. You are unable to practice generosity, kindness, etc. Anything done by a you cannot be anything but with the domain of the known, or else you would not even be able to recognize and label it as kindness, generosity, love, or whatever. A person who we might call realized or awakened or awakened to the no self has no awareness that he's being kind or generous or whatever nice spiritual behavior we might label it. He is simply being himself or herself. Full stop. When you do find your own unique way in the forest of the unknown, all your being is yourself. But it's a self that has been freed of all handed down beliefs, 
traditions, practices, anything you've read, all that stuff. Now, remember, this is only one side of of the one-sided coin, but still, the bottom line of all that is that you're just being yourself, fully, totally and fully yourself. You use that word self, so you're saying that there is a self beyond the known? The condition of no self does not eliminate a functioning aspect that we recognize as individuals, the 10,000 things. The Buddhists call the 10,000 things. All 10,000 things have no independent self-existences, including all the 8 billion of us. There is no 8 billion essences. There's only one essence. But there's 8 billion very unique individuals. So when I talk about being yourself fully and having left behind all secondhand beliefs, I'm talking about the distinct personality self, which does not disappear when the condition of no self is realized. It's just a seen through. It's just recognized that that individual self is only a very, very tiny portion of the whole enchilada. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like you're saying there's 8 billion, whatever you want to call their aspect of the self. (laughs) Personalities, body-mind apparatuses. And then the word self is... Self with a capital S. Is just one. Exactly. Okay, thank That's you. That's the best was, that language can do. Yeah, I can tell this is a very difficult concept <laughs> to use words to describe. Can you give that whole quote again from St. John of the Cross? In order to come upon that which you know not, you must go by a way in which you know not. So I had a couple of examples of what I was trying to express with this last concept, take acceptance. We like to think that if we could only accept what is, then that would be of high spiritual value to accept what is. But my contention here, when framed in the concept of (laughs) do-do, acceptance is already the case. Consciousness, by its very nature, accepts whatever is presented to it. So anything that you're doing in order to accept what already is being accepted can't help but muddy the waters. If it's already being accepted by the very nature of what consciousness is, or God or whatever term you want to put to it, then to try to accept what is can't help but get in the way of accepting what is. The same thing goes with be here now, that lovely spiritual axiom, be here now. In truth, here does not refer to anything spatial, and now does not refer to anything related to time. If here doesn't refer to anything spatial, and now doesn't refer to anything having to do with time, then how can you possibly follow this instruction of being here now, and not take yourself in the opposite direction? That's what I meant starting out, that anything you do that you think is toward some spiritual value or toward enlightenment or toward awakening is going to take you 
in the opposite direction. Even things that you might do to improve yourself, to make yourself more receptive to the divine, to change yourself, to get rid of your blocks, your impurities, is just more refined and subtle ways that put you back in do. So the bottom line here is that if there is something to realize, it's to realize your total and absolute helplessness. And that's what I mean by deep dharmic doo-doo. If you do find yourself in deep doo-doo and recognize it as such, it's a very good sign, in fact. That's where you want to be. And if you haven't yet recognized this, then your so-called spiritual work has not even begun. And you might argue with that, but I'm going to just put that out there. Back to Aja, I love this one story he tells, and I'm going to give my version of it here now. He came up through the Zen tradition, and he'd done a number of very intensive spiritual retreats, week-longs, two-week-longs at retreat centers. And so he'd been in the game for quite a while, working very, very hard, really, really giving it all he had. And it was at a lunch break during one retreat that he was at. And he was just sitting around and was overhearing these longtime practitioners. He was a young man. He was in his 20s at the time. He, he got a very early start. But these folks were sitting around, and they'd been at this for 30, 40, 50 years, some of them, going to the retreats, meditating, inquiring, working with their koans. And they were sitting around, and they were telling each other war stories from the past about, oh, I did this, I was with this teacher, I was with that teacher, and I got this, and this teacher said this, and oh, it was so funny, he said this, and this was the Cohen he gave me, and on and on and on. You know how people are when they get together. And Andre was listening to me, had this flash, he said to himself, God help me if 20, 30 years from now, I'm still telling war stories, something is very wrong. And he realized at that very moment, that he needed to do something completely different. Now, he didn't reveal what that something different was, <laughs> but it ties into my contention here. What I think he was realizing is that he needed to approach this in the spirit of the unknown, that these practitioners were steeped in the known, that they were trafficking in the known. They were telling each other these stories Lovely stories, great teaching stories. We've all heard them. But all these stories were in the domain of the known. And he realized that he had to find his own way, uniquely his own. It wasn't that he was disowning Zen. He still found much value in Zen. This is not about going out and burning down the temples. You can still continue to hold Whatever teaching, whatever teacher, whatever practice that you receive value from and hold it in high regard, but be freed of its imprisonment of you in the known. As long as all that good stuff is keeping you in the known, it's not doing you a service anymore. You can still hold all that stuff that you've received and hold it in high regard without having it imprison you. It's a very fine line. It's a razor's edge, as someone once said, Somerset mom. That's one of these very, very tricky fine lines. 
with a teacher named Lee Lazowick. It's my assumption, whether it's correct or not, a reason why Lee was so fascinated by people like David Bowie and Henry Miller and Charles Bukowski and Bob Dylan was because these guys, they struck out on their own. They found their own unique ways of expressing who they were and what they were. And it wasn't easy for them. There was a gamble. There were no guarantees that when Bob Dylan started to write his tunes back in the 60s, no guarantee whatsoever that this stuff was going to be received at all. But that did not deter him because he knew that he had to express himself in his own way. So even though these folks were not in what we call necessarily the spiritual domain, they weren't about enlightenment. They did wander through the forest of the unknown and find their own unique ways. They followed an unmarked, pathless path into the unknown. You could say that would be true of Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, who was Lee's teacher, and Ananda Mahima. They did what they did by accident. They fell into an authentic life, and that cannot be done by any force of personal will. They ended up in a situation they could never have imagined. They had no idea what their actions would yield or not yield, whether it would lead to success, failure, pain, or gain. But they were listening to the still small voice that set them on a unique and individual path that was all their own. And speaking of Lee, here's a quote from Lee Lazowick. The single significant ingredient that keeps us from celebrating our lives together in true worship of the divine is our reasonableness. Our attempt to make sense of things or find reasons in things devastates our spontaneity and innocence. And the way we make sense of things, some examples, are by invoking such reasons for things like karma, reincarnation, astral planes, cause and effect, determination. All of these are attempts to make sense. Lee is saying that if we insist on these reasons, it's going to just destroy our spontaneity and our innocence, and it's going to get in the way of our lives together in true worship of the divine. Whether or not any of these things are so, like karma or reincarnation, I'm not questioning that. Who knows? No one knows. It's a handed-down concept. It's a concept that you have no experience. None of us have an experience of karma. It's a handed-down belief coming from Eastern traditions. And that's the most that can be said about it. I call it simply more duduic <laughs> attempts at finding some security in the known. When we ask these questions, what can explain that we seem to come into our lives with different capabilities and different talents. Some of us come in with terrible circumstances. Some of us come in with silver spoons in our mouths. And we invoke reincarnation and karma as reasons. Ultimately, the questioner, the one who would ask these questions of why does one come in with silver spoon and the other come in with abusive, horrible parents, that questioner is what gets burned up in the fires of realization. The questioner, him and herself, needs to, or doesn't need to, but hopefully does get obliterated. So the reasons we give for things only comes up 
in response to the questions we ask. We're trying to make sense. So we ask these questions and we give ourselves these answers that have been handed down to us by the traditions. Once the questioner him or herself is burned up in realization, then the whole consideration of whether it's karma or not, whether it's this or that, whether it's determination or, or um, free will, um, all of it is, is rendered moot. Here's another Aja quote. One must be willing to stand alone in the unknown with no reference to authority or the past or any of one's conditioning. One must stand where no one has stood before in complete nakedness, innocence, and humility. At the same time, it seems like many teachers, many of what we would consider to be realized, have followed the instruction of their masters. Why would you say that that has been such an essential part of the path for many teachers who have realized themselves? There's Marpa and Milarepa, there's Yogiram Saratkumar sure. and Swami Ramdas, and there's so many in every tradition. I have a number of responses to that. First of all, Lee was quoted as saying, you must learn to stand on your own two feet. Now, that is something that Ajashanti is one of his primary principles of his work. And I found it interesting coming from Lee because Lee comes from the guru devotee model for awakening. So even Lee, who considered himself the devotee of Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, was cautioning against all the projections we put on a master, that they're going to do it for us, that they're going to raise their hand and suddenly our whole ego structure will be dissolved or we'll see the white light and it'll be done. That's one response I would have is that there is a way of being a true devotee and still standing on your own two feet. Another answer that I have found for myself is that I think that spirituality, like every other arena of humanity, is evolving. Every single art form, the bar keeps raising. The stuff I'm reading these days in literature, the bar is getting higher and higher and higher. In athletics, just think about what's being done. People are breaking records. They're doing things that were thought unimaginable just a few years ago. In the realm of the known. Right. But in spirituality, I think the same thing applies. The things that were useful, and in fact, Aja has argued forcefully that he even doubts whether the guru-devotee relationship has even worked very well in the past, let alone now and in the future. So that could be argued. How many millions of aspirants have there been kissing the lotus feet of the masters throughout the ages, and how many of them have actually become realized through that means? It's a very, very, very small amount, I would argue. How many, there certainly have been some, how many realized teachers or realized beings have there been who have not had contact or association with another realized being or who have not really searched for God? have not really given everything to their search for truth. Yeah, that leads me to the next consideration 
Whether or not it's true or not, I'm not sure, except that it's been influential for me. And that is what other teachers have called the direct path. And the direct path is one in which you simplify the whole practice boils down to just one thing, being aware of being aware. If consciousness is it, what is aware of consciousness? Consciousness. So to be aware of what already is aware, but to be aware of it knowingly, when your practice is boiled down to just that one thing, it does not require a guru. It does require a teacher. Arja's relationship with his teacher was very close, but he regarded her as a coach, not a guru, as a coach, someone to suggest, well, you might try going this way a little bit, bear a little to the left or bear a little to the right now. Those are very useful on direct paths, but it's different than a guru-devotee relationship. I have argued in favor of the guru-devotee relationship in the past, so I'm capable of arguing for it. But one of the reasons I've argued for it is because when people have poo-pooed the whole guru thing, it's usually because they have the typical American reactionary response to hierarchy. Anything to do with the hierarchy doesn't go down well for Americans. When people have come with that attitude, then I talk the usefulness of the guru and why the hierarchy is useful and necessary. But for me, the direct path has been where I've roots. I feel a very great pull when I'm around the property where Lee taught and where he's buried. So I feel that connection. And I have a great deal of gratitude for him, to him, towards him. Whether or not I'm receptive to him as a guru, I don't know. It's not up to me anyhow. But I'm certainly grateful to him and hold him with a great deal of affection in my heart. Remind me of, or anyone in the room, remind me of the teacher, an Indian sage who... He was like 16, and he laid down and tried to know death. That was Ramana Maharshi. He just decided at 16 years old he was going to lie down and see what this thing was. Then he saw in this mountain, Arunachala, his guru, Shiva. And he never left Thiruvunamalai again. But there's somebody who did not do it by way of a guru relationship. The mountain was his guru. You just said the mountain was his guru. And I would just like to comment that I think that if you are trying to reach the unknown and you are within the known, something within the known is going to have to point you in the direction you need to go in order to reach the unknown. And that without that, whatever you call it, guru or guide or mentor or coach or whatever, without that, there may be some individuals who have a mountain or a leaf or a bird or an animal which points them in the right direction. I think that something in the known is assisting. and Yes. I'd like to recognize the importance of that assistance, however you configure it. 
Well, like I said, starting out, this is only one side of a uh, one-sided coin. I really appreciate different points of view. I think that we all do. The idea is to have some kind of rigorous consideration about these issues. And we don't always have to agree or be adamant about our points. For me, contact with a guru has opened me to the unknown has given me a sense like, oh, everything in the known is not going to make it. Just by association and by being open to Lee or Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, I feel like I've had some experience or sense of that. Would that have happened otherwise? Maybe for some people it does. Maybe it's their karma. I can't say, but that's been my experience. The takeaways on this talk are not in contradiction to the guru-devotee relationship the takeaways have to do with the principle of standing in your own two feet, going by the way of which you know not. Lee was full of contradictions. One of his main thing was, my blessing is confusion or contradiction. What was it? Confusion is my blessing. Yeah. So he was always contradicting himself because, again, he knew that you had to somehow find your own way through the jungle of the unknown. Also. Another takeaway here is how imprisoning it is to embrace any belief or any handed down structure at the expense of finding your own way. Even if you hold what you've received as hand-me-downs with great affection and great regard, high regard, they're not contradictory. Like anything in this game, it's full of paradox. I want to read some quotes from the hard ass of all hard asses when it comes to this consideration, U.G. Krishnamurti. This guy was completely radical and uncompromising. He's talking here about religious experiences, high ecstatic experiences. And by the way, U.G., he was very highly schooled in all the traditions. He grew up in a very upper-class Brahmin family in India. His household, they would have these salons. It was like an ongoing salon with all these dignitaries coming through, both spiritual teachers and political figures, the whole gamut. So he was very aware of what was going on. And then he traveled extensively, including to the United States. And he had residences both in Switzerland and in India. He would go back and forth depending on the season. All those religious experiences are no different from the experience people have when they take drugs. I know a boy who had never heard of the Tibetan literature, but when he was on a trip, as they put it, he experienced all kinds of mandalas, mystical designs. He started talking about them, and he met one Tibetan chap who described them to him. How is that kind of thing possible? You don't have to be in Tibet. No matter where you are, you see, all that is part of consciousness. Even Donald Duck has become part of the human consciousness. You cannot experience anything which you can call your own. Whatever you experience, however profound that experience may be, is the result of the knowledge that is part of your consciousness. Somebody must have, somewhere along the line, experienced the bliss, beatitude, call it ecstasy, call it by whatever name you like, but somebody somewhere along the line, not necessarily you, must have experienced that. And that experience is part of your consciousness. You have come to a point where there is no such thing as a new experience at all. Somebody has experienced it before, so it is not yours. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. Nothing new under the sun, all wind and vanity. 
You cannot become a sage through any sadhana. It is not in your hands. A sage cannot have a disciple. A sage cannot have a follower because it is not an experience that can be shared. Even in an ordinary experience, you can't share with others. Can you tell somebody who has never experienced sex what the sex experience is like? The sages and seers are original and unique because they have freed themselves from the entire past. Even the mystic experience is part of the past. Not that the past goes for such a man, but for him the past has no emotional content. It is not continually operative, coloring the actions. This is the ultimate. You have to totally surrender yourself. There is no path of wisdom. There is no marga, no path at all. It is total surrender, throwing in the towel, throwing in the sponge. And what comes out of that is wisdom. It is not surrender in the ordinary sense of the word. It means there isn't anything you can do. That is total surrender, total helplessness. It can't be brought about through any effort or volition of yours. If you want to surrender to something, it's only to get something. That's why I use the words, a state of total surrender. It's a state of surrender where all effort has come to an end where all movements in the direction of getting something has come to an end. All wanting, be it this wanting or that wanting, is totally absent. By the way, the teacher um, named Rupert Spira, who's also been a big influence on me, says that today, again, this idea of the evolution of spirituality, this may not have been true in the past, he says, but today he feels, and his experience as a teacher has confirmed, that today people are able to get the direct path that is being aware of being aware without the guru-devotee relationship. It was not possible in the past, but it is now. Again, just because in all human affairs, the bar keeps getting raised. It doesn't remain static. Whatever you are doing is blocking its happening. It is misleading to put it that way because there is nothing to happen. You don't realize that whatever you are doing is a self-centered activity. Whatever you are doing in any direction is only strengthening or distorting the whole thing. The whole of sadhana is a self-centered activity. It is very difficult to understand that. The instrument that you are using is born in the field of cause and effect. It cannot conceive of anything happening without cause and effect. That is why it is not the instrument to understand this. And there is no other instrument. This is a causal. It is a quantum jump. It jumps from here to there. You cannot link up these things. You put me on the other side of the river. You want to cross in a boat. That boat is a leaky boat, and it will sink, and you will sink. There is no other bank, and there is no river to cross, no boat. It is very difficult for you to understand that. You have created an image and put the image on the other side. I say, no, for goodness sake, I am on the same bank. There is no river to cross and no boatman is necessary. All these quotes that I'm reading now are Yuji Krishnamurti. Oh. Whether you need a teacher or not, maybe it's different strokes for different folks, meaning there's different types of people. And because there's different types of people, there need to be different approaches because different types of people are more or less resonant with different ways of doing it. And you will go to the one consciously or unconsciously that is what you need. So the people who need direct guidance will find direct guides and otherwise. So this needn't be an either or kind of thing. Even if you enter a guru relationship, if that's what your resonance is with a guru devotee relationship, 
to hold that relationship simultaneously with standing on your own two feet. That's what I'm bringing out tonight, the necessity for standing on your own two feet and not holding what you're being handed down with from the traditions as gospel. Take them and have affection for them and hold them in high regard if that's what you're resonant with. Yes, that's the fine line here. Nisargadatta Maharaj used to do a puja to his teachers, even though he was the great non-dual articulator. You've been mostly saying neti neti, not this, not this. It's not the same thing. That's not the consideration. Because even practicing neti neti is a practice. And people who practice neti neti as a practice are doing something that's a sudden. What I'm suggesting tonight in the radical version is even that will get you nowhere except deep in doo-doo. Something else I wanted to mention was no effort won't get you there, but if you make no effort, nothing is going to move at all. Nothing needs to move at all. I'm quoting Eugene here. From where I'm sitting for tonight's talk, that would be the answer, yes. We're talking about all of us presumably are some sort of seeker, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We'd be on the couch, eating Twinkies, watching cartoons otherwise. And I'm saying that if you're a real non-seeker, you're sitting on the couch watching the football game, having a beer, and what are you going to get? So it's apples and oranges in a way. You're speaking to varieties of spiritual seekers here. Well, the other side of this one-sided coin, I could speak to that given another talk on another day. Agreed. Okay. What you're bringing is an apparent contradiction. I'm not sure that it is actually in contradiction with what other realizers have said. Teachers who have been in the guru-devotee relationship have said that no sadhana can bring you to this state, that practice is not going to get you there, and nothing can bring you to the state of total self-surrender, and yet they have recommended practice and efforting I just read this piece in Ever-Present Peace by Arnaud Desjardins just last night. And he says, one has to train for unconditional serenity. One must try. And I'm remembering that Baker Roshi said, enlightenment is an accident, but practice makes you accident prone. Ooh. I don't know if this will help or not, but something that's come up a few times as you're talking, again, language, we could split hairs over what these terms mean, but two words come to mind if you're in a devotional relationship with a guru. There's support, in theory, (laughs) support for, let's say, finding your own unique way through the forest of the unknown. I didn't quite catch that. Could you please say that again? Siri thinks I'm talking to her. Um, (laughs) What's the meaning of life? (laughs) But then another word just to discern what these relationships potentially could be like is to get caught in a dependency. I'm dependent on the guru to get me there. That's not going to work. But support, I would imagine Henry Miller and the people that Lee uh, valued, the artists that Lee valued, they had some kind of support. I don't know what it was, but so just a discernment, you might be on a devotional path 
and receive it as support, it might look the same as dependence. Just throwing that in. Well, the guru-devotee relationship really is quite different from just a supportive relationship, it, which would be yeah. more like what happens with a coach or a guide or the teacher. A guru-devotee relationship, it's an infinite relationship. It's multidimensional. It operates in domains other than what we're conscious of. Mm-hmm. I mean, support. I'm not using it like someone holding your hand. And it is hierarchical. That's another way that it's different than a teacher or a coach relationship. Lee, for instance, made no excuses how hierarchical it was, even though mm-hmm. students had personality relationships with him as well. I was just going to say in a guru relationship, there's an element of resonance that happens. Again, it's a nonlinear kind of resonance, but it's some kind of higher form of physics, maybe a higher form of physics like that in which time does not exist because all the stuff we're talking about is based on the presumption or perception of time. So the whole path, attaining anything, not attaining anything, any form of separation, and ultimately the transcendence or the awareness of non-separation it's all play within the domain of time which is illusory and in fact is already fulfilled like everything that we might hope for the path is already complete and it's just that we haven't caught up to it yet in a sense what a guru has to offer is a kind of resonance that would be said to accelerate or cut through other distracting frequencies maybe might be a another way to describe it that's how it looks to me. And it um, might be nice and cuddly, or it might not. In my own case, if the influence of my root guru, who is Lee Lazowick, is active, it's not up to me. And I just trust if it is happening, if it is active. At the same time, I also think that what Rupert Spira is saying about today, we're ready to receive a direct teaching a direct path that we might not have been ready for in years past. That resonates with me also. It's interesting to me how these direct path teachings now are getting aired, which would confirm what Rupert is saying about the evolution of spirituality. If the guru-devoted relationship is timeless, I tend to think so. But the evolution of the path, so that that wouldn't be necessary, I don't know. I can only speak from my own experience. I I don't have that experience. The idea here is to come from our experience about that. I was just going to say that as a caveat here, that I am highly suspicious of anything that talks about how enlightenment is evolving, that we're evolving to not needing gurus. It all just sounds like a bunch of baby boomers who are addicted to being special and want to be at the turning point of history all the time and are always just talking about themselves. All that I find highly suspicious. So I just want to throw that in. I feel remiss if I didn't. If you were to listen to Rupert Spira, though, coming from him, it carries the weight of real substance. That's the only thing I can say. Yeah, and it may appeal to that element in people, that anti-authority also. A charismatic guru can appeal to everyone from someone looking for daddy to someone who's a real aspirant in the whole range. That could be any teacher or any guru. Absolutely. 
So I wanted to end just this one quote, which I really think is very pointed. It's from Meister Eckhart. One of his prayers was, God, please relieve me of God. The idea of God, the God in the known, he's praying to God, please relieve me of that God. So this was a guy who was in the Godhead, let alone God. <laughs>